Welcome to Walking in Faith, a weekly podcast dedicated to examining the Bible to help lifelong seekers of the kingdom of God expand their faith and understanding by exploring God's Word. Now let's join Pastor Rob Harrington as he shares this week's message. Well, good morning once again. Take your Bibles, if you would, please, and turn to Luke chapter 18. We are going to finish out chapter 18 this morning. Yes, brave words, but that's the plan. Luke 18, verses 34, or 35, excuse me, through 43, it was speak about a faith that saves, a faith that saves. Let me ask you, have you ever tried getting somewhere important or doing something important only to have someone interrupt you? Or should I say, does anyone have children under five? Okay, so, so we should do that. I think, what was it, uh, Lydia was just asked this week, Cole is now at the age where he's asking why to everything. His response is why, 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 why? It's frustrating though, isn't it, at times? Not Cole asking why, but it can be frustrating when we're, we're trying to do something, but interruptions continue to happen. There's so much uh, demand on our time with only so little time available to us. We finally become focused on a task ahead. We begin to move forward only to have someone or something once again interrupt our progress, only to try and start over and over. Do you ever feel, let me ask you this, do you ever feel like your time and energy is set to someone else's agenda and not your own? That someone is just pulling those strings? Well, one of the keys to dealing with these interruptions in life is this actually to see them for what they truly are. God-ordained moments, or as I like to say, it's sanctification stupid. Okay, God brings people in our life, interruptions to help us become more like Christ. Now, that seems odd, but that's really what interruptions are. If we believe in a sovereign, providential God who, who holds all things in his hands, then we have to recognize that interruptions, even the ones that are the most uh, frustrating, are actually God-ordained moments to make us more like Christ and freer from sin. Now, in your life, if you're like me, many times it seems to make us uh, more enslaved to sin and more likely to sin, especially how we may respond to that. But it's really to make us more like Christ. Understanding the providence of God helps us to understand and deal better with those interruptions. In my office, I have this quote to help me to remember God's providence, especially when it comes to interruptions. It says, I will welcome God's interruptions in my life as the most exciting way to see God work out his plan for me. Do you see that? When your children are tugging on the dress, when the, when the boss is calling you or something is going on in your life, do you see interruptions as God's most exciting way to do something in your life? Probably not. However, we probably should try to align our thinking of what's really going on in our life with that which what God is trying to do. In other words, interruptions are not meant by God to make our life more difficult, which I'm sure many of us are thinking. It's not made to show us who is boss. As he's saying, no, I'm the boss. I will change things on you or to frustrate you, but actually to lead you to worship him by loving and serving others, including serving those who continually interrupt you. Last week, Jesus informed his disciples for the third time what was awaiting him once he and they arrived at Jerusalem. 
And though all those things had been prophesied hundreds of years earlier, the disciples we see still failed to grasp the significance of Jesus' words. His declaration was filled with both humiliation, in which he would be betrayed, ridiculed, tortured, and face death, but it also included victory. He would rise from the grave on the third day. Now, this shocking statement serves as the heartbeat of the story of the Bible. The gospel is the heartbeat of the story of the Bible. It helps us understand what is God is doing. It is part of the Trinity's redemption plan. Jesus' role was to offer himself up as our substitute and bear the wrath of God. In doing so, he earns both our forgiveness and reconciliation with the Father. This truth, this heartbeat, this statement of Jesus, as we see, has turned the world upside down. In today's passage, we find Jesus is on the road and he's making progress. He's walking towards Jerusalem. He's focused on the most important task in all of human history. Everything has been coming to this moment when God the Father interrupts Jesus' travels in the form of a blind man who is crying out for mercy. So in Luke chapter 18, look with me at verse 35. The beginning here, I think, is on the monitor. Again, I would encourage you to bring your Bibles. If you don't have one, we would like to make one available to you. So as we're reading, when we read, as Luke writes, and Jesus drew near to Jericho, <coughs> excuse me, a blind man was sitting by the roadside begging. And hearing a crowd going by, he inquired what this meant. They told him, Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. And he cried out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And those who were in front rebuked him, telling him to be silent. But he cried out all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. Jesus stopped and commanded him to be brought to him. And when he came near, he asked him, what do you want me to do for you? He said, Lord, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, recover your sight. Your faith has made you well. And immediately, immediately he recovered his sight and followed him, glorifying God and all the people when they saw it gave praise to God. Father, we want to give praise as well. We want to give praise for your miraculous power. We want to give thanks and glorify you for all that you've done in our lives. And most important for blowing and blowing and breathing life into our dead souls. Father, I pray that you would just be with us as we read this scripture. Make it come alive to us. Help us to understand what is going on here. And Father, may we then respond to the Spirit's work as we then apply that to our lives. In your name we pray. Amen. So I'm just give you some observations, just some facts, something that we just read here. So I'm just going to go through them. So first we see Jesus is heading to Jerusalem in the ultimate service of self-sacrifice. He's serving as our substitute in Bareth and wrath of the Father. He's been sharing about what it means to approach a holy God is through humility. And Jesus is giving a, a perfect and most, uh, the epitome of humility as he makes his way to his death. Now the crowd was heading toward Jerusalem. They were traveling with them. They were going to the feast of the Passover. The Passover is coming up very soon. But not even realizing as they're traveling with Jesus, to them, it's kind of a circus. Uh, we're not seeing this in Luke's, but he just kind of raised, um, I believe, Lazarus from the dead. 
And so they're just following and seeing what Jesus is going to do, not even realizing that the Passover lamb was actually traveling among them. As you see here on the map, on the monitor, Jericho, Jesus is making his way down from Capernaum, down from, the, from Galilee, and he's making his way to, to Jericho. You see it there. It's about five miles, or excuse me, five miles west of the Jordan River and 15 miles northeast of Jerusalem. So he's getting very, very close to his destination. But on their journey, as they're going through Jericho, they pass a blind man. In Mark's gospel, we learn that his name is Bartimaeus. Bartimaeus. And it was a common sight in the Middle East at those times to see blind men and women along the street begging for the kindness of those passing by him. It's kind of very similar, not so similar, but you and I recognize this when we're on the freeway and we're at an intersection, or if you're up and down Tustin uh, going through a drive-thru, you're going to see people during rush hour asking for money, uh, begging, looking for the kindness of, of strangers to meet their needs. And for a beggar, they could not work. There was no social nets in those days. The government didn't take care of them. Their family did not take care of them. And other than the fact that they would lead them to a place where people would pass, set them down there, and then they would beg for their, for their, for their food and for whatever they needed for that day, only to do it again the next. <clears throat> as he hears the commotion, as, Jesus, or as the blind man hears the commotion, he's questioning those nearby what is happening. He can hear it. He can probably feel the tenseness. He can feel the celebration. He can hear the noise, but he doesn't really know what's going on. He can't see. So he asks him, what is causing all of this noise around me? But once he hears that it is Jesus, he begins to cry out to the son of David. Now, you and I know at this time by Jesus' fame had spread throughout the whole region. Mark notes that a great crowd had followed Jesus from Galilee and Judea, Jerusalem, and from, uh, from Edom, and from beyond the Jordan, and from around Tyre and Sidon. It seems like the whole world is just following Jesus to Jerusalem. Now, Matthew, it's interesting, Matthew speaks of actually two blind men during this time, but doesn't give them a name. Mark and Luke, Mark gives them a name, but Mark and Luke only focus on the one man. It seems like it was only Bartimaeus that cried out for, for, uh, for help. Luke records four actions that happened in this passage. You might have noticed it. You see the cry for, for mercy. Like the persistent woman, he's persistently crying out for attention. He ignores the crowd who, who tries to silence him and tries to quiet him. Just sit there and be quiet. He believed that Jesus could heal him. He calls him the son of man, which is a, or the son of David, which is a messianic term. He calls him Lord. We also see that he recovers his sight. Jesus responds to this man's faith, and he simply, simply speaks, uh, speaks to restore healing. Be sight or see. He followed Jesus. He gets up, and we see from this passage that he counts the cost, and he again begins to follow Jesus himself. And then we see that the crowd glorifies God. They're directing their praise to the Father. This miracle actually led others to believe that Jesus was someone more than just a mere man. Now, as we come and try to understand what this passage is teaching us, I believe it's going to teach us three things. That I, it probably teaches us more. I'm going to focus on three. The first one, <clears throat> it reveals Jesus' identity as that promised king, that Jewish king, the Messiah, the Christ, the son of David. 
Bartimaeus most likely had heard of Jesus and his healing power. Hence why as soon as he hears who it is, he begins to cry out. <coughs> Hearing that Jesus is passing by, he wastes no time in calling out to him. He may even have dreamed of this day since hearing of Jesus' miraculous exploits. There was no way that this man was going to let this, this man or let this opportunity escape him. So he was going to do whatever he could to interrupt Jesus' progress and get him to heal him. Now, in our journey through Luke, we have read many times of these types of encounters. This is not the first the Apostle John even points out in his gospel that the miracles of Jesus could not even be numbered if there was enough books. So what makes this one so special that Luke recounts it? Have you ever thought about that? Of all the things that Jesus does, the gospel only records certain ones. So why waste us or waste our time and waste the t uh, Jesus' time in telling us about this miracle? Luke is so close to getting to the most important part of Jesus' story. Why does he stop and put another paragraph about another miracle? One reason might be because of the cry to Jesus. Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Son of David is a messianic title. And it's the first time that Luke actually records someone other than an angel saying this phrase. I want to give you a little bit of Old Testament background on this title. In Jeremiah, we read, Behold, the days are coming, Jeremiah writes, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king and deal wisely and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. This is a great promise. Is this not something that you and I desire and want? Do we not desire leaders, government leaders, <clears throat> maybe social influence? We, maybe we, even at work, we want just a boss who's going to do right by us. You know, they're going to do the right thing. They're going to have justice. They're going to treat us all fairly. That's, that's what everyone is looking for. They desire this. He goes on to say, in these days, in his days, speaking of this king, his Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell securely. And this is the name by which he will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. This is the king that they're looking for. On the monitor, you see Ezekiel. Where once again, the, the Lord declares, and I will set up over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he shall feed them and he shall feed them and be their shepherd. And the Lord will be their God and my servant David will be a prince among them. I am the Lord. I have spoken. Now, now this is not, <coughs> excuse me, speaking of reincarnation. They are not considering or thinking that David's going to be reborn again and be reincarnated. And it's David himself, but it's going to be the son of David coming from 2 Samuel where that promise is given to David. Well, I will give you a seed who will be this righteous king. So this son of David is whom all of Israel has been waiting for. All of their hopes have been wrapped up in the appearance of this son of David. He would be the one who would restore them to wholeness. Whether Bar Bar uh, Bartimaeus called Jesus the son of David due to his knowledge of his parentage or of his messiahship is not known. Why he cried out is not exactly known, but there seems here to be a clue in which when Jesus says your faith has made you well, that he is getting something supernatural, some information that is calling him to cry out to Jesus as the son of David. But what is clear is that Luke intends for his original readers, the, the Greek uh, Christians, 
the Gentile uh, church, to make that connection. Jesus is the seed of David. He is the promised king. He is the Messiah, the Christ. And that's what Christ means. It means Messiah. Jesus' full identity is now ready to be fully revealed. Peter and his disciples were told not to declare that Jesus was the Christ. In Mark's gospel, when Jesus says, but, do you, but who do you say that I am? Peter answered, and we know this, this is the confession. You are the Christ. And Jesus, once Peter says this, strictly charged them to tell no one about him. So even though they knew he was the Christ, they were not yet to tell anyone. And you might recall also in Mark's gospel is that when he would come in, the, the demons themselves would start saying, we know who you are. You are the son of the living God. You are the Christ. And he would forbid them to continue to talk. But now this time is about to be revealed. Yes, I am the Christ. I am the Messiah. I am the son of David. And he answers this man's cry. Now God has appointed Saul. Remember King Saul is Israel's first king right before David, a wicked man, or turned to wickedness. He was given authority to rule over the people as God's representative, just as you and I know of other, every other king throughout history, a ruler, dictator, or even the president of the United States that has ever been in power, is that we see that each and every one of those people are always appointed by God. We may elect them, we may vote them in, they may campaign, so on and so forth. They may even be born in that position, but in the end, we know that all power and authority comes from God. He rises, he raises up kings, he tears down kings. But here's some things to know about Jesus as king. And this is why I think it's important. When we talk about Jesus' identity as the promised king, we need to understand why this is important. In the Old Testament, the king had authority. Speaking of in the Old Testament, Israel in particular, the king had authority over the nation of Israel, just like any king had authority over their nation. That authority was, was sovereign. It was providential. It, it, it was, it was, it was, it was um, what's the word I'm looking for? It was secure. The, the, the king was the one authority. In the New Testament, Jesus, as we've seen through Luke's gospel, that Jesus himself was born to be king of the Jews. Yet, many times through the gospel, we see that Jesus refused any attempt by the people to make him king. We saw that after he had, he had done many times that they wanted to make him king, but he refused any attempt, any man-made attempt to absurd the Romans and put himself as king. Jesus did have a kingdom when he, whose arrival he announced. Remember, remember the king, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He is in fact the true king of all of God's people as well as those who do not receive him. He is the king of all things. After his resurrection, Jesus was given by God far greater authority over the church and over the universe and over all the cosmos. And one day Jesus will return as king in power and great glory to reign over his kingdom. So what we see here is Jesus Christ is fulfilling this office of the king. But in contrast to the greatest kings of Israelites, of Israel, like David and Solomon, Christ rules over the entire world and the entire universe, including the church. He is our king this morning. That's why we are come. When I say come to church, I'm not just saying come to some social gathering. This is an, uh, we, are, we are in an audience of the king. He has commanded us to gather together. 
so that we may hear his word and sing to him and pray to him and, and, and to serve one another. This right now, we are in the audience of the king of kings. And when we open up scripture, it's more than just Rob's words and opinions. But we need to recognize what is it that the king is demanding, is sharing with us today. He is the consummate king who rules wisely, attentively, with final authority and justice. However, we must admit that we struggle with the idea of the king, especially here in American concept, right? You know, we're not Britain, we're not Sweden, we're not some of these other kings that have, you know, monarchs who, who rule over every facet of our lives. You know, we, we live in a democratic republic, so we get a choice in it. So when we think of a king, it's very hard sometimes for us to understand the authority, the power, and our response to that authority and power. And so we need to recognize that what God is calling us to is to recognize that he is the son of David. He is the king of kings. That's what he's calling us to do this morning. In short, he rules as the God-man over the entire cosmos. And when he returns, he will deal definitively with all the hindrances and all the obstacles uh, to his deserved reign. The nations will no longer rage against him. At that time, he will be called the king of kings. So as you look at this passage, you and I need to be brought into once again that Jesus is the king. And because he is the king, he controls all things. And our submission to him is very, very important. The second point I want to look at is the fickleness of the crowd. Now, you don't see this so much as Luke as you'll see it in Matthew and Mark. But it seems like the crowd did not appreciate his shouting, his calling for attention. However, we do see the crowd changes in attitude when Jesus asked for him to come forward. There are actually two changes in this passage. First is the crowd's attitude moves from discouraging him, be silent, be quiet, to one of encouraging, hey, he's calling for you. Let's go forward as they then probably directed him to Jesus. One moment they're upset as it's his insistent shouting, his interruption that's disrupting the journey to Jerusalem, telling him to be silent. The next they're encouraging him to get up and go to Jesus. But then we also see another change, and that's in the blind man himself. He goes from pathetic beggar in their view, setting on the side of the road, to an energetic follower of Christ in which they then glorify him because of what God has done to this man. At first, he's sitting on the ground begging for money. Then he's crying out for mercy. Then he's throwing off his cloak. He's jumping up and he's heading towards Jesus, knowing that his eyes are going to be restored. And here's the thing, knowing about a king, and the fickleness of this crowd. <clears throat> the crowd really doesn't get a vote. You see, it's the king who determines who gets an audience, not the crowd. Sadly, this crowd heading towards Jerusalem to worship, a time of remembrance when God rescued them from slavery could not or would not even take the time to care for one of their own people. Take your Bibles and turn to Zechariah, if you would, please. Zechariah is the second to last book in the Old Testament. So if you want to go to Matthew and then go back to Malachi, then Zechariah <clears throat> chapter 7. 
The people of the book, <clears throat> that's what they're called, the Jewish people, the Torah, could not even remember this passage of scripture. To them, this man was just an interruption that is disrupting their day. They're willing to see what Jesus is doing, not recognizing that this interruption, they're going to see a great miracle. The very thing that they're following him for. Maybe there's jealousy, believing that, no, he should just meet my needs. But in Zechariah chapter 7, look at verse 8. And the word of the Lord came to Zechariah, saying, Thus saith the Lord of hosts, Render true judgment, show kindness and mercy to one another. This right here, by the way, is how you and I love one another. By showing kindness and mercy. Do not oppress the widow, the fatherless, the sojourner, or the poor, and let none of you devise evil against another in your heart. Boy, if we should just grasp that right here. But look at verse 11. But they refused to pay attention, and they turned a stubborn, stubborn shoulder and stopped their ears that they may not hear. How often have we done that to others when they are crying out for mercy, crying out for help? And we become stubborn and turn and shut our ears. Look at verse 12. They made their hearts diamond hard, lest they should hear the law and the words that the Lord of hosts has sent by his spirit through the former prophets. I pray there's none of you right now that have a diamond hardened heart in which you're closing your ears and you're being stubborn as the word of God is being preached and taught and you're saying, no, not for me, not for me. I hear you, but I want none of it. May there be none who profess Christ, who confess Christ this morning, who are doing so. And I pray if there's any here that have not yet accepted Christ, who do not know where you'll spend eternity, I pray that you will humble your hearts and hear the call of the Spirit. He says, come, drink, eat. Look at the end here. I believe we're at the end of verse 12. Because of this, because of their, their desire not to hear the word of God, because of their diamond-hearted heart, therefore great anger came from the Lord of hosts. Here we are four or five hundred years later, and the people's heart are diamond-hard against this poor beggar. They would rather see him set there every day in the dirt begging for money. Receiving whatever indignity may come upon him because of a condition he had nothing to do with. And he was born into. Sadly, that's many of us today who profess Christ. You may say, I'm a Christian. You may even read your Bible. May even give, but yet... When it comes to the interruptions, when it comes to those who need mercy, we close our ears. Their history should have taught them to consider this man not as a rude interruption, but as an opportunity to love and to serve. Do you see interruptions that way when someone comes in your office, knocks, when a kid comes pulling on you, dad, 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 mom, mom, mom? Do you see the dignity of these people? Or do you just see an interruption? Someone who is making your life more difficult. They have been judged for the hardness of their heart. The Romans, the reason the Romans are even there, 
is because God, they served as God's judgment and punishment, as had the Babylonians, the Persians, the Greeks before them. By the way, here's a free commercial on Habakkuk. That's what we are learning on Friday nights is God's judgment on his people that he loves. Fortunately, though, for Bartimaeus, Jesus was not above interruptions. He understood the divine appointments of God. He understood that his day was at the cross, but it was not that day. That interruption was going to be something that God had put in his stead. God, or Jesus, was most likely looking for that man, listening for him, knowing that he was on that road, preordained before the foundations of the world, so that Jesus may heal him and that God may be glorified. Do you see your suffering in the same way? Do you see your failings and your shortcomings, those things in which you wish that God would just make better? Do you see them as those types of things? Kevin DeYoung, a pastor I just love, I encourage anyone to follow him if you're on Facebook or Twitter. He tweeted out this past Thursday, you'll see it here. He says, being a good neighbor does not mean that you just own all state. But being a good, sorry, I I got to stop that stuff. Being a good neighbor means we will be willing to give of our time and our money. We will be willing to be what? Shut it. What? Interrupted. And we will be willing to show mercy to others even when they do not deserve it. There was nothing in this man that deserved Jesus to heal him. I'm sure there were many blind men in in Israel at that time that did not receive the mercy of God. But yet we need to understand, is this what God has called? This is what it means to love others. Jesus, once again, is, is emulating this, but the fickleness of the crowd was, no, no, no. Well, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no, no. Let us not be those type of people. And one of the things that I struggle with is I'm I'm a skeptic. I read someone, I hear about something, I I tend to be skeptical at first. And that's something I've been praying about and working upon, is is that we need to be ready to receive with with graciousness and and goodwill these things that we hear when people are coming to Christ or when people are coming and saying, I want to know more about Christ. Or when they're coming and they're sharing their problems. We need to recognize that those are God-ordained moments to speak Christ into their situation, into their life. The crowd knew what Jesus could do. They knew that he could heal this blind man with just a word. They have seen it. They've experienced it. They knew that Jesus could change this man's life, but they tried to prevent it. How often have we done that? Try to prevent the work of God. Well, I know that he doesn't know Christ, but I'm not going to share with him an invitation card. He might ridicule me. I'm not going to go door to door and just hand out door hangers. Someone might get angry. Well, it's just too much. It was hot that day. It was cold that day. It was wet that day. We need to recognize that God has called us not to prevent others from coming to Christ, but to say, here, man, here is you. If I was his friend or someone, hey, hey, Jesus, there's a man over here who's begging. Can you, can you help him? How often have you come across someone who says, man, my marriage is wrecked. Things are not good at home. I'm struggling. Or maybe they're suffering physically. Maybe it's just mentally. And we're preventing them from coming to Jesus. Well, how am I preventing them? Well, if you're not, if you're not pushing them to Jesus, if you're not compelling them, you're preventing. You may be that God-ordained moment to bring them and speak Christ into their situation. 
They tried to prevent him from healing this poor man. How loving, how kind is that? Are we guilty of such attitudes and behaviors? I pray that we don't. But I think if we're honest and humble ourselves, we would see that there are times that we are. Maybe not even consciously, just the way that we schedule our day and our moments. How open we are to hearing about other people who just want to vent or share their frustration or maybe they're in pain and we just don't want to listen to what they have to say. Number three, is I want you to see Jesus' mercy as a savior. So we see not only as the king and not only the fickleness of the crowd that prevents and then tries to encourage it, but then we see Jesus' mercy as a savior. In verse 43, we read that there is an immediate healing. It's not over time. It's immediate. This man once was blind, but then the next moment he's able to see. I don't know if he had to have a moment where he had to blink. He's seeing the sun for the first time, how bright it was. In my view, I think it was probably so instantaneous and immediately and, and, and true that he opened his eyes fully. I could imagine what that felt like. Oh, so that's what it looks like to be a human. That's what a tree looks like. That's what a bird is. My guess is the only thing he had eyes for was Jesus' eyes as Jesus looked upon him. But Jesus chooses to show mercy to the one the crowd initially rejected. Jesus sees much deeper, though, into this man's heart, and he chooses to give him sight. Once blind, he now sees. And Jesus notes that this man had faith, a confident trust in the person of Jesus. He trusted Jesus, the son of David, that he would grant him mercy and would be capable of restoring his sight. How sad and how devastating it would have been if Jesus would have said, I, I don't have time right now. Or if Jesus would have said, you know what? You kind of deserve it. You know, that, that's God's plan for your life. And by the way, it's a wonderful plan. No, Jesus hears. Jesus responds to the blind man's request with the command, recover your sight. You see, it's three words that recover your sight. This phrase, though, <coughs> excuse me, actually consists of only one Greek word, meaning see. Lord, have mercy on me. Give me sight. See. I'm not even going to try to pronounce the word. I have it here. It's even in phonics, but I'm not phonetically, but I'm not even going to try it. Dr. Schreiner notes that when Jesus speaks, listen to this. When Jesus speaks, he creates reality. He creates reality. We learn from scripture that Jesus is the word and he is the one that, 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 that spoke creation into being in Colossians. That all things were made by him and for him and through him. He is the one who speaks into salvation. When Jesus speaks, things happen. Luke had recorded that Jesus had commanded the blind to see, the lame to walk, the, blind, uh, the deaf to hear, the dead to rise, the demons to depart, the seas to calm, sinners to repent, and disciples to follow. 
And when Jesus speaks, reality is spoken, not in some type of word of faith. Sometimes that we think of of prosperity and health and wealth pastors where preachers where they're trying to speak reality by by saying things in your head, self affirmations. But he speaks true things. See. And the man saw. All of these supernatural commands to repent, to depart, to rise, to hear, to see, to walk are are supernatural commands that are outside of our ability to obey. There is nothing with this blind man that would make him physically see or for Lazarus to come out of the grave or for the the demons to depart because of my self-will. It is the work of the Holy Spirit, the third person, the Trinity, who obeys the commands of the Son when he says, see, who does the will of his Father. It was the will of the Father to make Bartimaeus be there and to be seen. It was Jesus who spoke it in existence, the Holy Spirit, who comes and regenerated those eyes who saw for the very first time. But his physical healing is not the only miracle that happened in that passage. It's not even the most important one, and it's not even the most impactful one. As Jesus declares that the man's faith has made you well. That is not speaking of physical sight. That phrase in Luke has a much more spiritual, deep meaning. As Dr. Schreiner notes, that we see that same pronouncement was made to the sinful woman in Luke 7, the woman with the 12-year hemorrhage in Luke 8, and the Samaritan leopard who was healed in Luke 17. Your faith has saved you. What we're seeing there is when he says, your faith has saved you, he is saying that your confident expectation or trust in Christ has now made you well, has made you whole. In other words, I have breathed new life into you. He got not only, not only new eyes, but he got new hearts. A new life. That's the gospel, right? It's understanding who God is, that he is the creator, the the maker of all things, the almighty God, who can measure the span of the universe with his hand. That's so amazing as we're seeing these new, what's the new telescope that's out there right now? The new one that's way out there? James Webb. And it's bringing back images that make the Hubble telescope look just, you know, almost uh, benign, like kindergarten drawings. You're never going to reach the span of the Father's hand. This is the God, the Almighty God, the creator of all things. But yet we know that we fell, we rebelled, we rejected him. We would rather go our own way. And because of that, sin is entered into the world. And that's why you and I see such brokenness. That's why we see so much corruptedness. You say, why is it that we're seeing people uh, over here at Taco Bell uh, at the drive-thru just waiting for someone to give them change? It's because of sin. It's the brokenness of the world. As I go to grab lemons off our lemon tree, why do I keep getting stung by the thorns? It's because of sin. Pain and childbirth, sin. Hurricanes, tornadoes, sin. Marriages that are struggling, imploding sin. Because of that sin, the Bible tells us that the penalty of that sin is death. You and I are hostile to God in our minds. We are blinded by Satan. We do not desire the things of God. And the due penalty that is God's wrath for eternity. Hell is real. 
Hell is a real place with real, a conscious torment where God's presence is there in hell. But all you receive is the wrath of God, never the mercy of God. See, he had, this Bartimaeus, he had received the wrath of God by, by sinful, by not being able to sin. That was the, his, his, why he could not see was because of sin, not his or his parents, but because of God's design and providence. But he received God's mercy. Those who reject him will not receive that mercy for eternity. But God in love, as we see in John 3, chose to elect and choose many so that they may come to know God and receive. His solution was to send Jesus, the Messiah, the Christ, the King of Kings, to give mercy to those who cried out for mercy, to give grace to those who did not deserve grace. And Jesus, coming and living 30 years of, 33 years of perfectedness, became the righteous and pure lamb who bared the wrath of God on our behalf, our substitute. And what God is calling us to do is respond to Jesus' work and to the Father's plan of redemption. We are the girl that he is trying to win, or that he will win. I shouldn't say trying, that he will win. And to live and inherit eternal life, inherit the kingdom of God. And I pray today that if you have not yet heard the gospel, that you would understand the gospel is God is reconciling God or man to God. He is putting in the balance. He is repairing that which is broken. He is ready to give mercy to those who humble themselves and cry out to him. Would you do so this morning? For his mercy is true. His mercy is real. Bartimaeus is set free from blindness, but now he freely follows Jesus because he can truly see, not with physical eyes, but with his new spiritual heart, his new spiritual eyes, who Jesus is. The opening of the eyes of the physically blind is in contrast with those who are blinded spiritually. Jesus is the promised king who is a merciful king. We see a God who is a merciful God. In 1 Chronicles, they say, Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures what? Forever. So what do we do with that? Jesus is the king. Jesus is merciful as a savior. He only, not only restores physically, but he restores spiritually. But yet there's within me a, a desire typically to prevent a lot of that from happening, even in my own life. Why don't we give you two things? Two calls to action this morning. Number one, I'm going to not challenge, I'm going to ask you, I'm going to say you need to submit to King Jesus with cries of have mercy. Have mercy upon us, the psalmist sings. O Lord, have mercy upon us. Only the humble and the poor spirit will cry out this morning for mercy. I pray that you would do so today. Do not delay. Today is the day of salvation. Maybe you're here and you're struggling in your life. You say, I have professed Christ. I have confessed Christ. I, I feel firm in that, but yet I feel that I need God's mercy. Cry for it. Lord, give me relief. Maybe it's a sin, a temptation. Maybe it's a physical problem. Maybe it's, it's a relational problem or a financial issue or something like that. Lord, have mercy on me. 
Though we may not be physically blinded, we have all been spiritually blinded. J. MacArthur comments that spiritual blindness refuses to admit its ignorance, it rejects the light, and it results in doom. Let us not be so. Yet the Apostle Paul writes in Ephesians, you see here on the monitor, God being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. There's that supernatural work of Jesus. By grace, we have been saved. What do you need to cry out to God for mercy this morning? Is it physical healing? Is it emotional healing? Is there a spiritual healing? Is there a, a fighting of sin? Cry out for mercy, for we have a Father that hears. Do you believe, let me ask you this, do you believe that Jesus can speak into your situation or circumstance? Do you believe that God can and will show you mercy? This man is a great example of the persistent, humble, and childlike trust that Jesus had been teaching his disciples that was necessary to approach a holy God. We do not demand from God, we cry out to God. God shows mercy to those who humble themselves and cry out for relief. As king, Jesus has promised to give us an audience. Not only that, but Jesus actually prays for you. What a wonderful truth. Have you ever thought about that? Jesus actually prays to the Father for you. He is our advocate. And number two, the last one. You need to submit. <clears throat> but you and I cannot be the fickle crowd. We must, number two, compel people to come to Jesus for mercy. Instead of those trying to quiet those who need mercy, we need to compel them. We need to drag them up if necessary. I love what James says. He says, some you have to drag into salvation almost. You know, with their garments fringed with the fires of hell. You need mercy. Cry out for mercy. Let me share with you the mercy that God gave me. Let's not be like the crowd. Do not view people as interruptions or distractions or people who, who should be put out on the side who say they, they, they deserve what they get. Luke tells us to go out into the highways, the hedges, and compel people to come in that my house may be filled. That's what we're doing just on Saturday. Three, you know, every third Saturday, we're just going out trying to, hey, come in. Come in. We're doing it in a, in a, in a, in a very easy way, but that's what we're to do. That's what I'm asking you to do with the invitation cards. We're just compelling people to do so. People are coming to us for counsel. Come to church. You need to be in church. You need to understand who Jesus is. Hebrews says, let brotherly love continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. We need to be open to helping to leading others to Christ so that they may glorify God himself. And one way that God works to bring others to himself is through our cries of mercy, our pursuit of Christ, our confident trust in his person, in his character, in who he is. We should actively and intentionally direct our family and friends to this merciful king and savior who can speak new life into their dead souls. Above anything else, that's what our family and friends need. They do not need you to win the lottery. 
They do not need you to, to get a bigger income, buy them a house, or just to be their buddy, or to like their Instagram. They need you to direct them to the merciful God. I'd like to close with James chapter 2. It's here on the monitor, I believe. What good is it, my brothers, if one says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to him, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving him the things he's needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Let us show our faith through our works so that others may come to know him. Like this blind man, let us glorify and follow the one who has showed us mercy that others may come to know him and his wonderful gift of grace. Amen. May we be those who cry out for mercy, directing others. There we have head bowed and every eye closed as the worship team and Randy comes up. Just take a moment just to pause and consider this passage in Luke. Jesus is a merciful Savior and a righteous King. And we as his people are to direct others to him. But before that, we are the Bartimaeus. Bartimaeus. We need to cry out for mercy. Maybe you have done so as a Christian, but now you still need to cry out for help in your life. Do not be prideful. Cry out for mercy. If you're here this morning, but you've never cried out for mercy, you do not know if you would spend eternity in heaven. If, if, someone, if Jesus were to say, why should I let you into heaven? You really would not know what to say. Then I would call you to cry out for mercy. Landon, Randy, and I and others would love to show you how you can truly know that God is ready to grant you mercy and give you spiritual eyes. May you do so this morning. Randy, would you come and close us in prayer? We hope you have enjoyed this week's message. We encourage you to share it with others. If you have any questions or comments, please email us at info at orangevilla.org. Be sure and join us for next week's message by subscribing to this podcast. To learn more about our ministry, submit prayer requests, or to find ways you can help share the gospel, visit us 